Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see you all here. My name is Lynn Roche. As a member of the Indigenous Connections team here, I have the honor of giving, giving the opening words for our service. Today, as Carrie mentioned, we will be celebrating East Shore's Indigenous Connections and the lessons we have learned over the years with our Coast Salish neighbors, most specifically the Duwamish, the Lummi, and the Puyallup. These Indigenous connections reflect long-term commitments that were inspired by the women we are honoring today, Beth Brownfield and Deb Cruz from the Bellingham Unitarian Fellowship. These two women have worked tirelessly to receive and sustain the trust of the Lummi and other tribes by following their lead and supporting the issues they choose. In turn, Beth and Deb have inspired some of us here at East Shore to do the same as we establish our own connections. Throughout today's service, we will share some of what we have learned and continue to learn in the process of building our relationships. You will hear about the importance of honoring people while they are alive, not only when they become our ancestors. We have seen that these honoring ceremonies often involve a potlatch event, potlatch event of gift-giving, feasting, singing, and dancing. Another powerful lesson we have experienced is the profound role of the life-giving force of Mother Earth, all the bounty and care she has provided from time immemorial. In return for those gifts, we have witnessed indigenous communities dedicated to taking care of the Earth, its resources, and all its creatures. We have learned about many actions taken to protect the earth, the sky, and the water in order to provide all of us and generations beyond a world that has been improved from what it is now. A final lesson this morning is posed as a question for us all. What can we learn and practice so that we create the beloved community in which we strive together to make our families and our world a better place for the children who are here today and for the many generations of children who are yet to come. Robin Wall Kimmerer in Braiding Sweetgrass offers words of gratitude that I will read to begin our honoring ceremony this morning. We gather our minds to greet and thank the enlightened teachers who have come to help throughout the ages. When we forget how to live in harmony, they remind us of the way we were instructed to live as people. With one mind, we send greeting and thanks to these caring teachers. Thank you all. Thank you, Beth. Good morning. My name is Maury Edwards. I am the proud son of Maury and Barbara Flood the great-grandson of Paul and Emma May Teffer, and the great-great-great-grandson of Obadiah and Leah West. Seven members of the Indigenous Connections Ministry are here respectfully to share our reflections on what we have come to know through our interaction with our Indigenous neighbors. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Uh, I've been a participant in Indigenous Connections and, and with many interchanges uh, with Indigenous people. And I've spent a bit of time 
with our neighbors, our indigenous neighbors. I've come to admire Freddie Lane and Doug and Jewel James of the Lummy. And I have a deep appreciation of the work of Ken Workman. And I've enjoyed time with Sonny and Cecile, the matriarch of the Duwamish. I've interacted with, I've interacted with many of the, the leaders of the Snoqualmie, but not as much as I would like to. What I'm going to talk about today is a new hobby that I have, and I, I, I've garnered from these people and from readings that I have um, in relation to my hobby, and that's gardening. Um, I'm a new gardener. Could never grow things. Always killed them. And so um, through my readings and talking to people, um, I've found a way to sustain plants and find um, a, a lot of satisfaction, some personal satisfaction. One of the places that I found information was from Dr. Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and she talked about honorable harvest. We as a culture think of things in terms of extraction. What can we get from this? What can we use from this? In honorable um, harvest, when we take the gifts that we eat and we use, we're talking about what's offered by generous, sovereign beings. For all that we uh, accept from them, we owe them our attention. And we trust uh, that we will attend to what they need. At the minimum, we need to know their names. So another aspect of, of honorable harvest is never take the first of a, of a plant. That way you never take the last. Never waste what you take. If you're going to take something from a plant, ask first. If the answer is no, to take would be stealing. So you don't take that time. When you do take product from a, from a, a plant, when you do take their, their offering, um, do the least harm and, and try to benefit the growth of the plant. Use all that you take. It's disrespectful to waste. Share the harvest with humans and non-humans. A culture of sharing is a culture of sustainability. Weeding, caretaking, spreading seeds helps the plant to flourish. This is a gift to the plant. Songs, ceremony, fertilizing, these are all signs of respect. Take the time to be grateful. That brings us into a state of humility, of understanding that we're not at the top of a biological hierarchy, but the, we are the younger brothers and sisters of all creation. So I found this approach to be really satisfying. As I came here this morning, I saw the reverenda out watering some of the plants and just watched her for a while as she was nourishing those plants. And as I approached her, she said, 
oh, I come out here a couple of times a week, but now it's hotter and, and they need three times a week now. And I'm thinking, that's in tune with those plants. What does the river end to get from that? What, what, does she, what does she receive in return? She re receives the healthiness of those plants and the beauty of those plants. So um, that's about honorable harvest. Uh, Christy Weir wanted to be here today, but she couldn't. So I have a brief statement from Christy. Being on the, inter the uh, Indigenous Connection team has deepened my knowledge of Indigenous history, culture, and issues. But the greatest benefit has been the personal interaction with Indigenous groups and culture. Through visits by the Lummi and Duwamish at East Shore Church Services, totem pole and prayer journeys, I've experienced and now can appreciate a more fluid sense of time with less emphasis on a given schedule. When Ken Workman of the Duwamish visits our campus, he acknowledges and thanks the trees on our campus, so I have gained a new understanding of how to honor the earth. She said she'd like to share a passage from Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of the Plants by Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, one of our book discussion choices. It's from page 299. If you get the chance to look at the book, I recommend it. Uh, the chapter is Witness to Rain, and I quote, Listening to the rain, time disappears. This forest is textured with different kinds of time as the surface of a pool is dimpled with different kinds of rain. Fur needles fall with the high-frequency hiss of rain. Branches fall with the blink of big drops. And trees fall with a rare but thunderous thud. Paying attention acknowledges that we have something to learn from intelligences other than our own. Listening, standing witness, creates an openness to the world in which the boundaries between us can dissolve in a raindrop. The drop swells at the tip of a cedar, and I catch it on my tongue like a blessing. Lynn? Thank you, Maury, for those words. That was a very powerful beginning. From our Coast Salish neighbors, I have learned that building relationships is sharing inclusivity and abundance. It's a way of life. Ceremonial events that I've been honored to attend have, are always intergenerational with elders, people, I'm not going to call myself an elder, but I'll say people my age, uh, midlife, and the little ones always running around. It's a celebration of life. They often include other tribes as well, and those, as I just mentioned, from non-Indigenous communities. I'm inspired by my friends, just as we've all mentioned and will probably continue to mention, by my friends from the Lummi, Freddie, Doug, and Siamalwit, by my elder friends, Ken and Cecile Workman from the Duwamish. It was really Ken who first opened the door to Indigenous connections for me, and for that, I will always treasure him. And I have a friend in the Puyallup tribe, Carolyn, who you probably have met, some of you. She's been instrumental in 
murdering and missing indigenous women work here in our state and across the country. These people embody for me spirits radiating with inherent worth and dignity of all. They view the earth as a sacred place with its abundant priceless gifts. They all share food and laughter. No matter how serious things are, no matter what they've been through, they stop, they hug, they laugh, they share their ups and downs. It's been an incredible journey for me. These experiences also then help me realize the importance of having these beliefs an integral part of indigenous connections itself. Planning services like this one that we can share this morning with you, events such as movies, that meaningful movies that are environmental and indigenous oriented, and the totem pole stops that we have here. Some of you I know have been able to attend them. We're having another one this Thursday. The Lemmy are coming down to honor and talk about Leonard Peltier with us. That all this to me has become more than working on some kind of program. It's a joy for me to participate. There are moments I share with friends as we uh, create our common vision with reciprocity and fun. We talk about different ideas, we argue, we laugh, we have jokes, we eat. It's been an incredible journey for me being part of that team. We're also extending our collaboration with uh, Earth and Social, oh, excuse me, Earth and Climate Action Ministry with religious education, with P-Patch. So we're broadening our reach here at East Shore. And we have a member of our team who's from Woodenville Unitarian Church. She's becoming part of our group and carrying some of our work to them, and she brings us their ideas. Today's honorees, Beth and Deb, reflect this same relationship. Over the years, these two women have freely shared their knowledge and their insights with me and our team. In turn, their gifts have helped strengthen our ties with indigenous friends. And I want to close right now by giving Beth a special thank you. It's Beth who offered us first the land acknowledgement, and it came with Lummi blessings. So it's her that I appreciate so much from that regard and many others. And it was also Beth who urged me to sit down and read and love and just embrace Braiding Sweetgrass. It's an incredible book, as you're hearing at our service today. Um, it's now my very tattered and much-beloved copy of a book. So thank you, Beth, for both of those. And thank you for listening. Thank you, team members, for your words. Um, I'm on a journey, and I've learned to have patience with the journey itself. I am listening and waiting. I'm stepping back and letting indigenous people lead. In the Tribal Journeys Handbook, I found 10 rules of the canoe and rule number eight particularly speaks to me. The journey is what we enjoy. Although the state is exciting in the conclusion gratefully achieved, it is that long, steady process we remember. 
being part of the journey requires great preparation. Being done with a journey requires great awareness. Being on the journey, we are much more than ourselves. We are part of the movement of life. We have a destination. And for once, our will is pure. Our goal is to go on. Am I prepared for the journey? There's always more to do. Have I achieved great awareness? Far from it. My preparations and intentions must slow down so that awareness can catch up. Becoming much more than myself will require patience, attention, humility, and a joyful open heart. Thank you. And I have some words from um, Wenda Collins. Wenda says, I think the most impacting knowledge I've learned is how the indigenous, indigenous nations look backward and forward. This is demonstrated by two things. When the nations have a potlatch, they serve the oldest first because they have traveled this land the longest. And then they serve the youngest because they have the longest road to travel. Thank you. Hello. So um, I want to just tell you a story from my own personal perspective um, from my life a long time ago. And I feel it's long, but I feel like it's a story that needs to be told. So Terry was a friend of mine who I fought fires with in the Forest Service for about three years in North Idaho. This was Avery Ranger District, right next to the Coeur d'Alene Reservation. Coeur d'Alene people, also known as the Umish, who tended the lands of the Ranger District and also my homeland for time immemorial. Tend them now very well. And Terry was Ojibwa. And he came to Avery that summer from a tribal college a long ways from Idaho for a good summer job. And to me, he was an ally who embraced and supported me in my new sobriety. He knew what alcohol did, and he believed in me. And he understood the power of alcohol in Native communities to just relentlessly destroy. And he fearlessly protected me from my destructive anger. He witnessed the rawness of my despair. And his soft-spoken warmth, his honesty, his integrity, it came to him authentically. It just lived within him. He saw me, and he knew that I saw him. And over time, I have come to understand that he is one of the reasons that I remained sober for 33 years. So 
Our lives drifted and we've lost touch. But I think of him often. And I want to share this story with you because it's a moment I remember that tells me so much about the experience of being native today when you're not among your people. So fire crews are a crew of 20, and some of them are college students, some of them are ex-cons, some of them are homeless until they get a job on a fire crew, some of them are hippies growing stuff on the sides, some of them are native, and some of them are a smattering of the wild and the serious. And that was certainly true for this crew. Four of our members were of the Coeur and Confederated Salish tribes. Terry was Ojibwa, Dan was Aztec. And two, my brother and I, were just sort of figuring out that we were a Cherokee nation broken by alcohol abuse, lost identity, and boarding schools. So at the beginning of the summer, Cliff, who was from a prominent Salish and Coeur d'Alene family, was fired for coming into work late. Our boss met him in the parking lot without any warning at all, decided to make an example of him and fire him because maybe next time he would come to work drunk. Bob, who was also a member of the Coeur Nation, was fired like Cliff, like Cliff with no warning, no chances, just fired because he showed up drunk once. That was all, just once. And on this particular day, we were preparing a clear cut for burning with a crew boss who was the worst kind of young man in power. He was a local who had grown up next to the Coeur Reservation and constantly complained in front of our whole crew about how the Coeur were able to hunt elk and deer all year. And that just was not fair. Ceremonies? Why did they need them for ceremonies? They were just going to throw the meat out anyways. They can't eat that much meat in one weekend. I can't remember the number of times I heard him say that. They just want to kill deer and elk all year long because they can. And he would talk about how Native people, how the Coeur d'Alene and Salish couldn't be trusted, how they got drunk and got into fights and caused problems, and how the Native land should be for white people because they didn't know how to manage their forests. And it wasn't fair that they got to go hunting and he didn't. This young man of European descent was angry and obnoxious and ignorant, and his rants would go on and on every morning right in front of Terry and Mike and my brother and I. And he expected us all to agree with him. Why wouldn't we? There were many of us who detested his talk, but no one questioned him. He was our boss. And in this little land of Avery, he had power, and he did not, and we needed jobs. But on this day, Terry and Mike, who's another Coeur d'Alene Nation member, now also a Sawyer, they packed their saws down the hill, and they refused to work. We were preparing 160 acres for clear cuts for controlled burns. We had a lot of work to do. 
And Terry and Mike set their saws on the ground and sat on stumps, tall and strong, bandanas wrapped around their foreheads to catch sweat and sawdust. And they said nothing. They just sat for a long time. And our boss was furious. He told them in every way he could imagine to start working. But they did not. They didn't respond. And for a long time, they sat still, hearing every word our boss threw at him, not responding. And I remember watching, just watching, as our boss became powerless. And after a very long time, Terry and Mike started up their saws, but they worked very slowly. And the rest of us proudly followed their slow pace. They did not lose their jobs. I don't know why. I don't remember if our boss continued his obnoxious ranting after that day. I don't remember if anyone told our boss that he needed to stop. And I don't remember what happened the next day or the next. Terry and Mike knew the crew supported them. But did we really? Fearful, avoiding conflict? Is that why the rest of us did nothing? And what good is it to be a silent supporter if you do nothing but say, yeah, that guy's wrong? I regret that I didn't stand next to Terry that day. Had the roles been reversed, he would likely have stood silent next to me. And now here's my story. So as the years passed, I've taken on the journey to come into my own. And I've had to gather my own silent power, the power that Terry and Mike sat with that day so beautifully, so strong. And in my own life, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my dad, and my brother and I carry our Cherokee ancestry. My brother and I are the first generation born without black hair and darker skin. And like so many people with this mixed heritage, I don't know if I have the right to call myself Cherokee. I'm not sure it's my decision to make. And I'm not sure if it even should be. My life was not catastrophically damaged by government boarding schools, alcoholism, unbelievable, constant abuse, and loss of identity. My dad's self-loathing and anger towards his Cherokees, uncles, and father runs deep in a way that mine does not. I hardly knew his family, and I never visited their homes, on reservations, off reservations, moving every couple of years. I never lived on a reservation. I was an adult alone when I experienced my first powwow, and I was invited with friends to a sweat lodge. To my knowledge, my dad has never been to a powwow or a sweat lodge. 
but I don't know. But like Dad and Terry and Cliff and Bob and Mike and so many Native people who have touched my life and mentored me and been my elders and my beloved friends, I, too, have silently absorbed a mountain of ignorant, thoughtless, and shocking moments. I felt judged and alone more times than I can remember. And I've watched my dad feel the same way. And for the most part, I remain a silent witness, listening to words from far too many people who barely understand what it is to be Native today. And many of them are really good, wonderful people. I'm so grateful to those who see me. I'm grateful to those who allow me to see them. I have known, even through the depth of my, even though the depth of my experience is different, to share and witness fearlessness, resilience, playfulness, awareness, hope, pain, with a silent power that speaks greater than words. And that helps me to know that I am not alone. I'm so grateful to you, Terry, wherever you are, and I hope to God, if you're not sober, that you've managed to follow a good path. I believe in you. And Dad, wherever you are today, I want you to hear that I am the daughter of Warren Keith Haley, the granddaughter of Clyde Haley, the great-granddaughter of the Cherokee woman I never knew. And I will forever carry that ancestry with pride. And that is all. Thank you. So I have witnessed and taken courage from the deep commitment to protecting Mother Earth as a sacred obligation evident in indigenous ceremony. The tribes call on all of us individually and collectively to do our part to protecting the waters, air, plants, and animals that share the beautiful earth with us. Each being has a role to play in furthering life. Each being deserves our respect and gratitude. To me, indigenous ceremony embodies vividly the sentiment expressed in our own UU Seventh Principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are part. Canoe journeys and indigenous-led demonstrations on the Salish Sea and waterways reveal a deep abiding connection to the sacred. The cultural and spiritual revival underway in the tribes, which we have been blessed to observe, expresses a vision of what is worth striving for and reveals a way forward towards overcoming our own despair. We need courage and community to do what we need to do to change our current path of destruction. 
I am forever grateful to the Lummi in particular for inviting us to witness and to a limited extent participate in their celebration of life. And I'm deeply grateful to both Deb Cruz and Beth Brownfield for helping us see and understand more clearly what the tribes offer us all. So I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce you to Beth. We've mentioned her a number of times. Beth is a lifelong activist and educator. And in the 1970s and 80s, she instituted a prison reform initiative, bringing many thousands of books into Minnesota prisons. She's marched and camped in the Black Hills with the American Friends Service Committee on Wounded Knee. She's uh, engaged in fundraising and provided educational work. Um, she's formed a Native American Connections Committee at UU congregations in Minneapolis and in Bellingham. And those, those activities include educational experiences, social action, volunteer, and fundraisers. And she was a director for two years, from 2002 to 2004, of the national indigenous-led organization called HONOR, an acronym for Honor Our Neighbors Origins, which worked at the invitation of Indian nations on issues and challenges they faced. She moved to Bellingham in 2004, and two years later initiated contact with the Paddle to Lummi canoe journey and launched a community connections that brought cash, goods, services, and volunteers to the Lummi hosting the uh, 2007 and 2019 canoe journeys. Between 2008 and 2013, she took a leadership role in the Unitarian Universalist Association repudiating the doctrine of discovery. Currently, she presides over Bellingham's Unitarian Fellowship, Native American Connections Committee, whose mission is to support, honor, and work with and for indigenous peoples locally, nationally, and internationally. In 2013, she hosted 300 religious and activist leaders to listen to Lummi present their perspectives on the proposed coal terminal, which was finally um, uh, never took place. Um, in 2015 and 2016, she initiated two seven-day intensive dialogues up at Lummi, uh, which is right near Bellingham, sponsored by the UU College of Social Justice. It was attended by participants from six states who returned home committed to stand in solidarity with their area's original peoples. I, along with Kate Elliott from East Shore, attended the first session, which made a huge impact on me and motivated me to learn more about and get involved with indigenous issues. For that, I will be forever grateful for organizing that. I applaud Beth's commitment, her competence, her passion, her creativity in furthering social justice generally and for facilitating, facilitating connections between UUs and indigenous communities throughout decades. Deb Cruz is not with us today. She is up at Friday Harbor in San Juan uh, with the Lummi and other tribes who are uh, organizing to honor uh, Tokete, who has just passed. Uh, but she will be with us on, on a re recording. And like Beth, Deb is a member of Bellingham Unitarian Fellowship. She is currently the president of Justice Washington, a UU state action network. And she's able to, uh, she's the convener of um, Justice Wa for the First American Indian Nation Solidarity Action Team, uh, which takes um, indigenous connections teams from around the state uh, to, to collaborate. 
Deb's journey in social and environmental activism began at a very early age. Forever a daughter of the earth, her journey has led her down many paths to many places with many people. Deb's work over the decades has its roots in the repayment of a debt that can never be fully repaid, both to the earth and to the Indian community. As a troubled teen, Deb was taken under wing by a Lakota family who introduced her to Indian country, the joys and sorrows, the dark and light, and gave her a pathway towards life. They honed her spiritual connection to the earth and gave her the language and imagery, a spiritual perception in which to speak to and for the earth and all her children and gifts. Her journey has crossed decades and led to engaging with the tribes and nations all across the continent, personally, spiritually, culturally, socially, and politically. So at this point, I would like to ask Beth if you would come forward and speak to our gathering here. First of all, in raising your hands, you say Haishka. And Haishka means thanking spirit for you. And I thank this committee and all they have done and all they have experienced and learned and are sharing and expanding that. And for this congregation, too, to come together to listen to these amazing presentations of self and what is available through the work with indigenous peoples. I have a confession as an activist that I'm not a studied activist. I'm a savant activist. Things come to me. I have no idea how to do it, and I respond, and amazing things happen. So I don't plan my year that this is going to happen. I'm going to be working on this, but it comes to me. And so I'm going to give you some examples of part of my life journey. The seeds of my activism were planted at the age of nine about indigenous peoples. When I was sitting, I went to um, Detroit to pick up a car with my family. We take, took a train from California to Detroit. And I was walking down the street holding my mother's hand and looking at skyscrapers. I was from a little town. And I tripped over something, and when I looked down, it was a can of pencils. And on a blanket next to those spilled pencils was a man with no legs. We went to lunch. I couldn't eat lunch. We came back to the hotel, and I ran into my mother's body. She had a plaid, quilted, gathered skirt on, and I went between her legs, and I just cried and cried and cried because I knew that man had to sell pencils to eat, to live. The second experience was when I was 12, sitting at a desk with the metal sides and the wooden lid that you could lift up and put your books in, and I read a paragraph about smallpox blankets that had been given to Indian prisoners to kill them. And I couldn't imagine that any human being could do such a thing to another human being. I had no one to talk to. We didn't discuss it in class. And it was just a horrific thing that I thought, now we, lo we know better than that, and that will never happen again. So those were two pivotal seeds of 
injustice that I learned at 9 and 12. So I turned 82 on July 30th. And looking back to my freshman year in college was one of the first times when I joined the Y Roundtable. And we were working on uh, Joe McCarthy's um, Red Scare, which was the um, House on, uh, of the, the House Committee on Un-American Activities. And so we were attacked as pinkos as communist supporters because we were trying to do this work. But we raised awareness and money to counter it. So how do I come to activism? I would learn about something that would disturb me, that would concern or worry me, and I would look around, well, who's doing something about this? And if I didn't find something, well, somebody's got to do something, so I would jump in. The first year my daughter was born, in 1970, I heard about Mattel Toys developing a new Barbie called Growing Up Skipper. If you twisted Skipper's arms, her busts enlarged. <laughs> they didn't have a Ken doll. If you twisted his leg, he had an erection. It was the breasts that were the important thing. So I started a national letter writing campaign to Mattel and a petition that went around the country with newspaper articles and things like that. And Mattel finally did produce the doll, but they had Harvard, you know, educators working with young girls to talk about this doll and what it did and what it represented for females. So they did take it off the market. Um, in 1974, I attended a Quaker summer camp and learned about the takeover of Wounded Knee and the involvement of our government with indigenous peoples and resources. So I worked with the Friends Service Committee for seven years. We marched in, and camped in the Black Hills. We raised money for AIM, which was based in Minneapolis, where I lived, and the trials, and we brought speakers. We, um, and this was work that I did for seven years with the American Friends Service Committee. And so for 49 years, since that time, I've been involved, focused um, a lot on indigenous work. In the early 80s, I attended a lecture about the new right, the religious new right. And I gathered together a coalition of 40 different organizations, progressive, and we called it the Minnesota Interchange Network to raise consciousness about the dangers of the religious right agenda. They said if you went behind a lilac tree when there was an atomic explosion that you would be protected from the radiation of that. I mean, the, against the ERA, against many liberal causes. In the early 70s, as a member of the First Unitarian Society of, of uh, Minneapolis, I joined a coalition of religious groups, and they were working on various liberal causes. And for some reason, I joined the um, uh, coalition that was working on, on prison reform. And I heard that there were no books in prisons for prisoners to read. They had a little cart, but they were, you know, books, not ones that they wanted to read. So we started a fun, um, a drive to collect books. We put a box in every single library in Whatcom County, had a volunteer for that, 
we raised, we collected 100,000 books. We couldn't handle it. The libraries were calling us, get these GD books out of our entryways or spelling over. So we called the, um, uh, the National Guard to come and pick up the books. We called the school district, got a storage area to put them, and for two years we worked in sorting the books and getting them out to every single uh, group that was working with people who needed those books. We still had thousands of books left. So we called the National Guard again. They moved all the books we had to our church, the First Unitarian Society. We had a big book sale, and we got rid of thousands of books. But we had thousands of books left over. So we called the radio station. We said, free books, come and get them. And they took every single book. So with the money, we gave to the prisons to buy resources that they, they needed. In 1997 and 1998, I attended two work camps out at the Pine Ridge Reservation. And we worked at the Suan Big Crow, which was the first boys and girls club on an Indian nation. And they were housed in a Quonset hut. They had books that people dropped off, Dick and Jane, whatever, but nothing culturally specific. And the librarian came through and she said, you need a good library. So our group went back to our church. We raised, we had 10 people that were on that work camp. We raised $2,500 and we bought 500 culturally specific books that went to the Suan Big Crow so they could see themselves and know their history. In 2002 and 2003, I was hired as the office manager of honor that uh, Marilyn mentioned, honor our neighbors' origins and rights. It started during the fishing wars in Wisconsin when they said, save a walleye spear an Indian. They, they, you know, flattened the tires of their cars. They stole their nets. They was horrible. Um, and so, Honor worked at the request of tribes to come in and work with them on issues that they were having with Christians and, um, and uh, indigenous-led. And during that time, I also, as office manager, I, I put on workshops, um, uh, seminars, and I facilitated them, but had speakers come in to talk about sovereignty, treaty issues, uh, cultural uh, work. And in 2004, when I moved to Minneapolis, I went out to Nooksack and to Lummi and talked with the leadership to ask for permission to give these courses here in Bellingham. And so five years, I used indigenous people from the different tribes and nations to come in and present. And there were about 50 people in every single class that I gave. And they didn't know anything about the Lummi or the Nooksack people that are just across the way from us but it opened the people's eyes to that. And then in 2007, with the tribal uh, journey, and also in 2019, in 2007, we raised $80,000 to give to Lummi to help support, and it was in food. People would give thousands of pounds of raspberries or truck in lettuce and things like that for the tribe to use for feeding. But the most important thing that happened during that first year is that we developed a proclamation that honored officially for the first time 
that the Coast Salish people were the first inhabitants of these lands and waters. All the time in history, no one had ever officially acknowledged them. So we had a proclamation signed by all the mayors in Whatcom County and the county executive, beautiful proclamation that we gave to each indigenous person. And to the, to the tribes, we gave letters from the governor of Washington State and all the politicians on official letterhead, acknowledged them as the first inhabitants. In 2013, we read about Beyond Coal, and it was Lummi Nation trying to have people understand it wasn't just about having a coal terminal come to Bellingham. It was about the sacredness of their treaties and their lands and their fishing rights. And they asked us if we would help get them the religious leaders to come that they could speak to. And we offered our congregation for that spot. But we also said you must talk with the activists. And so in the morning, we had 86 representatives from religious organizations, and we had 250 activists from 44 different organizations, and they turned the leadership of the coal terminal fight over to Lummi Nation. Coming to the end here. So... There's no way, there's no end to what keeps evolving out of the relationships that have been built. You know, we talk about the totem pole journeys, the gathering of the eagles, Tokatai, the Hawaiian uh, fire. We had people in the uh, gathering of the eagles there from Maui. And uh, one of, uh, Marilyn will tell you, but there's one woman that was there that is housing 10 families that were part of their canoe family. She is housing them and feeding 10 families. So what are the lessons that I've learned? If you're wondering who's doing something you believe should happen, it may be you that needs to start something. You don't have to know how to do it. I wasn't trained in economics or politics or anything. You just keep speaking it, enrolling people, Working as a team, not as an individual. You can't do things by yourself. You need to have the feedback and the input from people around you. And don't forget to make big plans. Make outrageous requests. Can you give us 2,000 pounds of raspberries? Do you have any cheese? Yes, we have 1,000 pounds of cheese. You know, be outrageous in what you ask for. Do you have a support boat that can come with the canoes from all the way up in British Columbia down to Lummi Landing? Yes, a Boy Scout boat came. So make big plans, make impossible things happen. Don't forget to ask for what you need. And it doesn't take your energy. You are the flame that ignites people on either side, and they light the flame, and it goes out that way. So what are the motives for being an activist? The world needs people who can step out and not hold themselves back. Don't listen to that little voice. I don't know anything about collecting money. I don't know anything about public speaking. I don't know anything about whatever. Don't listen to that voice. You just get beyond that and speak. And, and, uh, and then listen to your heart and your gut that's calling you. You will find work to do in your wounded places. My wounded places was seeing the man with no legs. My wounded place was reading about smallpox blanket. 
my wounded place is about Tokatai, my wounded place. So those are places where I work. Be generous, be selfless, don't take the credit. Don't, people don't remember who started this and that, and, but they remember what happened. So don't take the credit for yourself. It's like Johnny Appleseed in planting your seeds. So thank you to this congregation, and I feel so honored to be here and to be part of this morning's service. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I apologize for not being there with you in person today. As many of you may have heard by now that Scully Chuckanut passed away last week. Scully Chuckanut was a young Southern resident orca that was literally ripped away from her family here in the Salish Sea and held captive for over 50 years in Miami Sea Aquarium. We, and this means a lot of people, under the leadership of Lummi Nation elders have been working for up to three decades for some of us to secure her release back to the Salish Sea and her family. We are so close to bringing her home. She is home with us and her family now, but not in the way that we'd hoped. So hopefully I'm sitting here on Jackson Beach and Friday Harbor, sharing the grief and the joy of what was her life and the impact she had on us and the world. Such is the story of Indian country, interwoven strands of tragedy and beauty. I have been blessed to be a part of that weaving for almost 50 years now. My journey in and around Indian country began as a child and it's difficult to describe that journey in just a few minutes. It's been a lifetime with one foot in Indian country and the other in the white world. As a child troubled by poverty and bullying, I found solace in the earth. I found my safety and sanctuary in the stillness of the lakes, the rush of the rivers, the touch of the mountains, the vastness of the ocean, and the humble solitude of the woods. This connection to earth was the door that opened a whole new world of possibilities and the journey that I would come to follow. The major turning point came when I was 15 years old at the height of depression and hopelessness. A Lakota family took me under wing. I learned from this family that my affinity with the earth was something very special and something to be more deeply understood and nurtured. I would begin to learn the rituals and imagery in which to practice my spirituality. I would begin to learn the language that would name that spirituality, bring life to my prayers, and reshape my perception of the world. I would learn to begin, I would begin to learn a history of people that was hidden and has taken a lifetime to bring to light. I had the rare privilege of being able to spend a brief time on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and I always wondered why that such a short period of time could have such a tremendous impact on me until I learned the term full immersion, which some of you educators will probably understand. 
I had very little contact with any white people. I ate, slept, drank, talked, worked, and loved Indians. I experienced firsthand in a very personal way and intensely the impacts of trauma and history and how beauty and hope lives lives interwoven with it. From New England to Washington State, from Florida to British Columbia, I have traveled across the continent and I have encountered many different peoples, different languages, different cultures, all with their own stories and songs. The history remains constant though. The longing for once was is ever present even if only as a dream, I have met friends and heroes. So my journey has not been one of seeking atonement for what my ancestors had done. And it's not been a call to act upon injustice. It's been a journey of gratitude and love, the repayment of a debt that can never be repaid. I will continue this journey until I no longer have the capacity to make my own choices, one foot in Indian country and the other in the white world. The first part of my journey was the learning and knowing of the Indian world, which is just a drop in the ocean. This last part of my journey has been to be a bridge that allows the passage of healing to continue, that sharing of grief, friendship, longing, and beauty, and rage, and love to make way for you to be a part of that journey too. We need more people to cross that bridge, to forge a new path of respect and sharing, to shake hands, to give hugs, to cry a little, and to laugh. You have the opportunity coming up next week on August 31st, East Shore will be hosting the Leonard Peltier Totem Pole Journey Blessings. Be brave. Put your foot on that bridge. <laughs>